Once again, it's wonderful to be here, to be worshiping with you, and to share my thoughts from the Word of God, which is something I love to do with everybody anywhere, anytime I have a chance to do so. But it especially means a lot being here. Uh, for those that may not know, I grew up being a part of the congregation, uh, being brought by my parents, uh, visiting. I guess I, I was not a member at the time I was a child, but nonetheless, uh, there's probably just a few that are still here that would remember me from that time in the uh, 60s. But um, the church has been wonderful in supporting me, and as was mentioned by Brother Payne uh, a while ago, um, the church is very thoughtful in um, wanting to help those, even without solicitation, uh, helping uh, the, the preachers, and, and, uh, and it was a real blessing, not only the congregation here, but the one in, in, in Conway at Prince Street, that uh, without me even asking, they, they actually helped me, and it was really really very much needed at the time, and I appreciate it very much, the thoughtfulness, and I appreciate the congregation here, and of course, the stand for the truth over all these many years. So it's always been an honor for me to be supported by the congregation here, and I just uh, pray that our relationship may continue to be uh, a, a blessed one for, for, for you as well as myself. And um, <clears throat> I want us to continue talking about what we were talking about earlier at nine o'clock, about renewing the inner man, but and I want to emphasize the aspect of it being a daily renewal. And this is going to be a very practical lesson. If you like to take notes, you're going to have to do it very fast because I have a lot of scriptures. I'm going to put them on the board, but I have good news. If you want a, a list of the scriptures that I'm going to have on here and about basically why they're on here, uh, I'll give you these. But I'm also going to encourage you to make up your own list personalize it, and you can think of scriptures that might be more applicable to you in uh, doing what the purpose of these scriptures are supposed to do, and that is to renew the inner man daily. Now, remember, we talked about how the inner man is the mind and the heart and the will and the conscience, and so we want to look at how we are to renew each of these on a daily basis. I'm going to begin with uh, 1 John chapter 4. And um, the reason I'm starting with this is because I will confess that this is my favorite Bible passage. And so for me, this is what works the most for several of these points of renewing the inner man. Um, I had originally started this up as a way to get the congregation to focus on one particular aspect uh, for a week and have one scripture a day, seven scriptures for each aspect uh, for a week. So one of my I had, of course, with uh, renewing the mind has to do with the knowledge of God. The whole Bible is what you need to read if you are to be uh, filled with all the, the knowledge of, of God's will. But 1 John 4 tells, it, it impresses me, and actually my favorite verse is verse 16 because of how it impresses upon us the certainty of our faith, where he begins by saying, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And there are more things to be learned from this reality. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. That verse especially started motivating me when a, a preacher who is very effective at personal evangelism uh, shared this passage as a way to get over your fear of, of talking to others. If we love somebody enough, we will talk to them. We'll, get, we'll find the courage to talk to them. And, and so renewing the will, this is a very important passage for doing that. For this reason, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. You know, in the Texas Receptus, it says we love him because he first loved us. Well, that's certainly true. But we love. We love others because he first loved us. We've learned how to love because he first loved us. And it's a unilateral love, and that was earlier described here in chapter 4. And actually, for the next point... uh, about renewing the heart with the love of God, I actually start with verse 7 of, of chapter 4. But for now, I'm, I'm beginning with verse 16 about the emphasis on knowing the love that God has for us. And we love because He first loved us. Verse 19, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, whom we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And it goes back to that certainty of, of God's love for us. And so there's so many things that motivate me as a result of, of this passage and why I guess it's my favorite passage uh, to read, to, to help me to renew my mind, my heart, uh, my will, um, among uh, all the other things having to do with the inner man. There's another great passage, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we see that this love for God was commanded, and it's the greatest commandment, as Jesus quotes uh, verses 4 and 5 in Mark's account of what is the greatest commandment, he, he actually quotes the fact upon which the command is based in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What kind of life is that going to look like? Well... Verses 6 through 9 continue to say, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you love God, you're going to love His Word. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be in your mouth. And that's really what Romans 10 says, and you notice that's the last one on this list, Romans 10, righteousness which is by faith, in contrast with righteousness which is by the law, righteousness by the law is the man who does those things shall live by them, righteousness which is by faith is that the word is near you, it's in your heart, it's in your mouth, and I'm pointing at my heart, but the heart's not really here that we're talking about when we're talking about the Bible, but it has to be in the mouth as much as the heart. And to me, it's the strongest argument for personal evangelism that there is. Every Christian is to 
have to be continuing to believe. It's not a step just toward becoming a Christian that you believe and you confess. But the word, the word must remain in your heart. You must continue believing. You must continue uh, confessing because the Word must continue to be in your mouth as well. It has to be in your heart so much that it is in your mouth as well. And that's what Deuteronomy 6 says. This principle is universal. It was true then. It's true today. It's true with the gospel today, and that's the application, of course, Paul makes by the Holy Spirit in Romans 10. But the principle was there with regard to what Moses had to say to the Israelites about following the law that God had given to them. It was to be loved, and it was to be in their heart. It was to be in their mouth, and they were to teach it to their children. And then we find that later on, in verses 20 through 25, that these people who were given this law were the same ones who had already benefited from the grace of God. He'd taken them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery. They crossed the Red Sea and saved them, delivered them from Egypt and its power at that point. And they were about to go into the land that God had promised them. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, statutes, and judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is today. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So, you know, young people don't understand, say, why do we got to keep all these rules? And say, well, because God has been so good to us. He rescued us from slavery with great and wonderful miracles. And he given, He's given us this land as He promised our fathers. He's faithful to His Word. He means what He says. He says what He means. And He tells us to do these things for our own good. And that's why we do it. We do it out of gratitude. We do it out of love. We do it out of the blessings that He continues to promise to give us. And that's the way they were to teach their children. They would teach the instructions and also the why. It was all built into the Word itself. The ones in Psalms are song uh, passages of praise, of adoration for the Word of God. David loved God's Word, so uh, that's because he loved God. And it goes back to 1 John 4. We believe the love that God has for us, that results in us wanting to love God, and so then we're motivated to keep His commandments which we find in His Word, which we love because we love God. And uh, Acts 17 is another one I put here. And the reason I put Acts 17 is because it has that key word daily that we are to do this every day. Just as the Bereans showed their open-mindedness and their interest in the truth, their love for the truth, by searching the Scriptures every day, daily, to see whether or not Paul, an inspired apostle, who could back up his miracles with, I mean, back up his, his preaching with miracles. Uh, I can't work miracles. You should not take my word for anything. You should look it up yourself so that uh, you don't put your faith in me, but rather in the word of God. And whatever I have to say has to line up with what God has already said. Just like Paul, what he said had to line up with what God had already said. So the scriptures they searched, they could see, oh, that makes sense. And that's why the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica 
which actually came later to drive him out of Berea, but uh, it's a love for the truth that led them to have that. So these scriptures are, are there um, for, that, for that reason. And like I said, you could take any section of Psalm 119 and uh, do this, which is what we're studying in our Bible class at Highway 5, by the way. Um, but I'll also uh, mention it's important to renew the mind with wisdom as well as knowledge. And uh, so there's only no, no list of scriptures here. All I got to do is read the book of Proverbs. But remember, we looked at Colossians 1 about Paul's prayer, that we'd that we be filled with knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Basically, if I was to simplify and perhaps oversimplify what that means, uh, it's a willingness to do God's will. That's what spiritual wisdom is or spiritual understanding. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And, and so I, I, I think that's a, a pretty good basic definition. But something I, I, I thought of doing a long time ago, starting with the, the, my children, and I actually started suggesting this to other parents, read one chapter of Proverbs every day. You read through it in a month. Then start over again. It's real easy to do to follow the calendar if you, if you know what, what, what's today, the 25th. Read chapter 25. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good when you have 31 chapters. You got 31 months, uh, days in the month. And now there's some that have only 30 days. I usually double up with 30 and 31 uh, on those. Now, February, it gets a little, well, you might want to rearrange that a little bit. But some of them group together pretty well, especially in the first nine chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 go together pretty well. Chapters 8 and 9 definitely go together. Uh, you can even put 7, 8, and 9 together, really. Uh, there's these little sandwiches uh, that you find in Hebrew literature. And um, 30 and 31, of course, still go together. So I just try to keep the ones with so many miscellaneous verses, which is chapters 10 through 29, uh, keep it you know, to, a, to a minimum as far as a, a read through the Bible in a year program. I would only do two chapters at the most on any day of Proverbs anyway because there are so many subjects that you're looking at uh, at a time. But we got into where we can remember a lot of where the Proverbs are and what they're saying because we've done it for a few years now, and uh, it's very helpful to do this. So I, even people who don't really have an interest in the Bible that I meet, I talk to, I, I try to suggest to them to read a chapter of Proverbs um, it would help with any potential problems that might come up in their life, pretty much. So you, you read it through it 12 times in a year. If you do that several years, you start starting to remember it. And I, as I'm reading through it, I think, it seems like I read this last week. <laughs> but it was actually a month ago uh, as we read uh, what we read this morning. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says that knowledge without love puffs up, but love builds up, you know. But uh, I would also add, knowledge without wisdom is destructive. A little knowledge can be a very harmful thing, especially when preachers start going to the Greek. Uh, be careful. But uh, still, I believe it, it can be, careful, if carefully done, it, it, it can be helpful sometimes. So now here's a list to renew the heart daily with the love of God. And of course, top of my list is 1 John chapter 4. And um, I just left up 1 John 4, 16 through, through chapter 5, verse 4, 
but it's the seven below it that are actually the, the ones. And so, as I said, uh, for this point, I actually begin with verse 7 of 1 John. And it's my favorite chapter. Verse 16 is my favorite verse. First John 4 is my favorite chapter. It, to me, is the real chapter of love. I mean, a lot of people like to use 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. They start reading, and though I speak with uh, the tongues of, of men and even of angels, you know, what does this got to do with a wedding, you know? Um, the, the context has to do with spiritual gifts and goes back to chapter 12 and, and all. So it's just, uh, I'm amused by people that will take the whole chapter and read it and they probably have no clue what the first and last part of that chapter is about, but that first part describes love so well. Um, but if, the, if that was the definitive thing and the only thing, then we wouldn't have all these other passages that talk about love. But First John chapter 4 teaches us a, lot, us a lot about the love of God. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we, we find that it's a unilateral love. God loved us when we were unlovable. It is because of who He is that He loves us. And that's actually, in my study of agape, phileo, and all this, I think people have over, overthought it. The nature of the love is really not different. Um, and as far as feelings go and, and everything, I, I think some people have over separated them. But the, the, the fact is, um, agape focuses on the character of the one who loves, uh, phileo focuses on the, the, the person that is loved, you know, because of the, the, of the object. Um, and God, of course, has this love that glorifies Him, the, the selfless love that He had for us. There's nothing about us that makes us be loved by God. It is because of who He is that He loves us. It's in spite of who we are and what we become because of our rejection of Him that He chooses to love us because He is love. And our faith should be in Him and His love. And having faith in, in this fact is the faith that enables us to overcome the world. And uh, it casts out our fear so that we can be obedient to what the Lord has told us. And all these passages here are great for the Lord's Supper. They're great for telling us what we are to be doing and what kind of lives we're to be living and remember the great price that is paid for us. Uh, Romans chapter 5 in particular, I, I, I appreciate. We have also um, uh, some detail on that in, in, in the first five verses. And then you got uh, the last six verses that have even more to think about. So <clears throat> I just want to focus on this for just a second. And, and, and this actually has a couple of points, too. Uh, the, the point about joy, which that's actually the heading here, renewing your heart with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's an expression from uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. But um, he, he, here we have 
Paul's saying, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by grace into the by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Because the love of God has been poured out in our heart. This hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. So that's the basis, this reality that we understand that God loves us. That's what our hope is based on. And that gives us the strength to endure these tribulations, which then builds us up, builds up our patience, it builds our character. And, and so we can be even more equipped to, to serve the Lord and be uh, stronger to endure what more Satan may throw our way. Um, these are the kinds of things that we need to renew our heart with. But then we come to the meat of it to consider the depth of the love of God and how the Holy Spirit convinces us of this love and how He pours it out in our hearts um, is through this message of uh, verses 6 through 11. So while we were still without strength, when we were helpless and hopeless, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the greatness of the love of Christ. Maybe you can find somebody who's willing to lay down his life for his best friend. Maybe in the army they train you to be willing to lay down your life for uh, a buddy in the, in the foxhole. But who would offer their own child to die for anyone else, even their best friend? I can't think of anybody who would uh, have sacrificed their own child to die for their best friend. That's why... God gave was His only begotten Son. And He didn't give it for people who deserved it. He didn't give it for people who loved Him. He gave it to us while we were yet sinners. He, he died for the entire world. Jesus knew, even when He came to die, that He was going to be rejected by the overwhelming majority of the world. And God loved us enough to have him die anyway because it was worth it to him for those that would really get it. And I pray that's you and I uh, who understand that today and that we would build on that by following in the footsteps of Jesus, taking up our cross every day and, and following him. And then he makes this point, beginning with verse 9, much more than when you think about how much God has loved us when we were sinners... How much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we're His children as well, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. If you have any doubts about that, this is a way to, get, to take care of it. And that should bring you joy. You should rejoice in this. And that's how He started it. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's all based upon the reality of His love for us, which is demonstrated through His Son. So if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so if you're in a bad mood, 
Read this. Remember how much God loves you. It's a, it's a tangible love. It's real. It's not just uh, wishful thinking or anything like that. And here are seven scriptures for this life for you to focus for a week on, the, on joy, to renew your heart with joy. Here are seven scriptures. Two of them are the night before Jesus dies. He's trying to comfort his disciples because he told them he's not going to be with them for much longer. Um, John 16 uh, overlaps also with the concept of peace that will come up in a moment. Uh, Philippians, he's just, Paul's overflowing with joy, even though he's in prison. He's overflowing because, you know, his imprisonment has actually resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. So Christ is preached, and he's in a no-lose situation. We always talk about a no-win situation. You know, people, they really think life is tough, and it's a no-win situation. They're, they're, they, they're going to lose either way. Well, Paul looked at his life as a no-lose situation. To die is Christ. You know, I mean, you know, to die is gain. To live is Christ. I, I, I'll live for him and, and help you all out. To die is gain. Uh, to, be, to part and be with Christ. And then he told them to rejoice the same way and that they would have the peace of God if they would have that kind of, of faith to pray about everything and not worry about anything but pray about it with thanksgiving, with joy, having already told them to rejoice in the Lord. God of peace would also be with them if they would focus on the things that he told them to focus on in verse 8, things that are uh, good and true and noble, uh, with good report, lovely. First Thessalonians, he wrote in response to Timothy coming back and saying, the Thessalonians are faithful. Because Paul left. They were going through a, a terrible persecution he had to leave because the Thessalonians had actually gone away from uh, there and went to Berea to chase Paul out of Berea. The last time that happened to him was when Antioch, the Jews in Antioch, went to Iconium. They, they all got stirred up again. He went to Lystra, and there he was worshipped as a god because they had healed a man, Barnabas and, and, and Saul both. And uh, the people were ready to worship them. And then the Jews from Antioch came and turned the people against him, and they stoned Paul, left him for dead. And so he's concerned about the Thessalonians. This is, this is a, an, another time like that where the Jews in Thessalonica went after him when he was in Berea. And he went down to southern Greece. He was in, in Corinth when, when the news came from Silas and, and Timothy. And it says... When they came down, he was compelled in the spirit and began preaching even more vigorously because he was so excited about the good news that the Thessalonians were still faithful. So that's, that's, that's a couple of great passages in 1 Thessalonians uh, about that. And then 1 Peter talks about the joy inexpressible, the, the salvation of our souls. So um, you can probably think of some other uh, verses in the Bible that, that would bring you joy. It's whatever works for you. And I would uh, suggest you, you, you look for your own on these. And uh, once again, 1 John 4, 16 motivates me. It motivates me because in verse 3 it says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And as I think about that verse, I, I try to troubleshoot my heart a little bit and think, do I think that some of God's commands are burdensome? If I think that, then it's probably because that first part of the verse doesn't apply to me. If I think that last part's not applying to me, oh, his commandments are burdensome, then it might be because the first part doesn't apply, that I'm not loving God the way I ought to. 
And so this is how we should be examining ourselves as we look at the standard that God sets for us in His Word when He says, this is the way you're supposed to feel. This is something else I remember hearing um, over the years. Often when I'd hear preachers who would uh, talk about, well, it was part of this, I think, idea that agape doesn't have anything to do with feelings. Phileo, uh, it does. But uh, I, I think it also has to do with this idea that God doesn't command feelings. Well, I, I've seen a lot of places in the Scripture where He's commanded certain feelings. So the issue is, if we don't feel the way that God has commanded us to feel, we should examine ourselves and think, well, why am I not feeling that way? It's probably because I'm not thinking the right way. There's something in my value system that is askew of Scripture, and the solution to that is to renew the mind and, and to, to search in that and then bring in the, the passages that are going to renew the heart as well. And so if I love God, I will keep His commandments. And they will not be burdensome to me. It's a labor of love as opposed to being a, you know, a chore and a drudgery. Um, and then it's like, well, I don't really feel like doing it. We'll, we'll burn out if that's our attitude. If it's done without love, uh, you can go only so far until you run out of gas because it's not what God is really looking for, for from us. He is looking for our hearts. You know, we, we say, listen to our hearts. Well, he, that's, that's exactly what he wants to, to hear is our hearts more than our voices. But we're to sing with the heart as we sing. So we are, we are to produce the sacrifice of praise as the fruit of our lips like Hebrews 13, 16 talks about, or 15 talks about, but we also need to be um, doing it with the spiritual instrument, the heart that God has created instead of uh, mechanical instruments of music that, as they used under the old covenant. And once again, uh, Colossians 1, this prayer does the same thing for me as well. Um, troubleshoot my heart. Um, look at the last part. You know, we are to endure... Uh, suffering with the attitude of long-suffering and joy, patience. Um, I don't feel like I'm there yet. And so the question is, why not? Lack of spiritual strength. Why is that? No God? Am I increasing in the knowledge of God himself? Uh, and if that's the problem, why is that? Because I'm a failing to apply God's word? You can just back it up. Maybe it's the very beginning. I am just not really endeavoring to renew my mind with the knowledge of God's will, which is what you have to do in order to know God. You have to have a knowledge of His will and then be practicing His will before you can know God. That's where the spiritual strength comes in, and that is what will be demonstrated in how you react to persecution and suffering and all the temptations and setbacks that there will be in life. And so as we look at God's will... Uh, I want us to, to think about what the, the class this in the auditorium was really perfect, perfectly uh, dovetailing with uh, some of these ideas. Um, one of the, the very first sins was Cain and Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice that was not acceptable to God. Uh, Cain, Cain offered fruit of the ground. Uh, Abel offered his by faith, Hebrews 11.4 tells us. He offered the best of what he had. So whether it's because one was a blood offering, the other was not, uh, God required uh, grain offerings. So it may be the fact that 
Abel gave the best, Cain didn't. But that was another distinction uh, that we see. But nonetheless, Abel did what he did by faith, which is by the word of God. And in the case of um, uh, Cain, it just says he gave something. He gave something. Um, Then God tells him, well, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? The good news of that is that even after Cain had been disappointing to God because he did not do what was pleasing to God, he could still be accepted. That's good news. That this one mistake you know, didn't mean he was lost forever. He still had a chance to be accepted by God if he would do well. That was, that was hope for him. But instead, he was warned, sin is lying at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain still had the power to rule over it. He still had choice. It wasn't because Adam sinned that there's this fallen nature and and we no longer have a choice but to sin. No, there's always a choice. And that choice is to do well, God will accept us. And if not, it's our own fault. We should rule over it. So I, I, I like that passage for that reason. Then you have Joseph who was tempted not just once, twice, every day. He was tempted you know, by Potiphar's wife, come lie with me because he was good looking and, and he, he re- rejected it. He says, how can I? You know, I? I've been trusted with everything. The only thing is you. How can I do this great sin and, and sin against God? Um, if, if, if somebody was to tempt you with, with, uh, to commit fornication, uh, that, that should be the response. If that doesn't discourage them, and in the case of Potter's wife, it did not. Um, she still insisted every day. He was a slave. He couldn't literally run from the situation until he actually had to, and he did. And he suffered for it. He suffered time in prison, and we don't know how long that was. But it was a good long while between uh, the time he was a slave and the time he was a prisoner. He didn't ever say, well, I guess God doesn't care about me. Didn't start feeling sorry for himself. It doesn't change the promise that God made to his great-grandfather Abraham. It didn't change um, the faith of, of, of his grandfather Isaac. Didn't change who God is in his dealings with his father Jacob. He stayed faithful, even though he was in a foreign land. We talked about Daniel earlier this morning. He made up his mind not to do something. I believe Joseph, a great parallel with Daniel, they both made up their mind ahead of time. They were not going to do that by committing sin. I like Philippians 2, 12, because it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then in verse 13 says, Because it is God who energizes you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Um, Then you have uh, 2 Corinthians 8. We've talked about this this morning. And uh, it... The passage as a whole, chapters 8 and 9, was referred to during the collection as well. There first must be a willing mind. That mind has to be educated so that it would be willing. And uh, that's where it merges with the heart as well. I mentioned uh, James 4 about how it's a sin to procrastinate it, as if we're entitled to tomorrow when we're not. And it's, that's arrogance. And instead, if we know to do good, and we don't do it, it's a sin. And we can even sear our conscience by that. So we're back to 1 John 4, 16, how it motivates us to overcome fear, to uh, keep His commands because He loves us. And then we need to renew our conscience. 
with the peace of Christ. Um, these are, there, there are many examples we can put here as well. Use one from Genesis 13, where Abraham and Lot had to separate. It says, let there be no strife between us, for we are brothers. Uh, I really like Luke chapter 10. This is the limited commission. And uh, this is where Jesus tells the disciples, go out two by two, but don't take anything with you. They are to trust in the Lord to provide. When they go into the city, they're to find a house where there might be uh, somebody that would be willing to support them while they are there. And they were to go to the house, and they were to, to greet the person in that house, say, knock on the door, say, peace be upon you. And if they slam the door in your face, your peace will return to you. Think about that. What do you have? If you give peace to somebody and they receive you in the home, you have peace. That peace is multiplied. You have it in your heart. They have it in their heart. There's a relationship there. And they're supporting you. That's a wonderful thing. But even if they slam the door in your face, Jesus said... Verse 6, your peace will return to you. Think about that. You never lose it. You have a clear conscience when you deal with people in a godly way and they reject you, you can still have a clear conscience. You still have peace with God and you have peace with the future even if you may not have peace with that individual because they've rejected you. Remember, they've not rejected you because of who you are. They rejected you because you are carrying the message that they reject. They They are rejecting God. And so we look at Samuel and thinking, wow, he sure was pretty arrogant to, to feel rejected personally. And God says, they've not rejected you, they rejected me. Um, well, we, we have the same problem sometimes. And, and that makes us hesitant to, to talk to others about our faith in Christ. So are we thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think when in a backwards way we're, we're really thinking, uh, thinking we're thinking we're too small of ourselves? Then, again, Jesus, the night before he died, he, he told the disciples, my peace, I, my peace I give, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world didn't give it to you. The world can't take it away. There was a song that, that played after the, the program we had on radio in, in Daytona Beach. And that, that's the song that they always sing. The world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. And that's actually a great concept. Um, the peace we receive is from God and the world can't take it away. Not if you don't. Not if you, unless you let them. Don't let them take it from you. We looked at Romans 5, how we have peace with God, having been justified. This also gives us peace concerning the future. That's the, what the end of, of chapter 5, was, uh, verse, uh, verses 9 through 11 was about in that passage, was we have peace with the future because we have this peace based upon what God has already done for us. So think of how much more He will do for us because we are now His children. And then there's Ephesians 2, where it talks about the peace of God, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 11. Uh, I include verse 10 of Isaiah, where it talks about the wolf with the lamb and, and all these kinds of things. And people think, well, that ain't literally happened, so you know that's going to be in the future when the millennial kingdom is set up and all this kind of stuff. Well, verse 10 says that in the same day, that's when the Gentiles will look to Christ as a banner. Romans 15, 12 quotes that verse and says, that's fulfilled with the Gentiles in the church. They're, they're the wolves, and the lambs are the domestic uh, animals, or are, are the Jews. And they're all one in Christ, because Christ made peace, making us all one new man between the two, Jew and Gentile. He broke down that middle wall of partition. So we have peace with God and peace with one another. So that's um, a good verse about the future in that case. In Philippians 4, we're to not worry about anything. We're to pray with thanksgiving. 
So there's that gratitude. We're to rejoice. Uh, there's actually two pairs of commands um, to be focused on uh, attitude, rejoice in the Lord again, say rejoice. Then the behavior, let your moderation or gentleness be made known to all men. Then the promise, the Lord is near. And then attitude, and nothing be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Instead, action, pray about everything. And let your, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The promise is, the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then verse 8 has to do with attitude. Whatever things are noble, whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely and, and just and, and of good report, um, think on these things. If there be a virtue, be any praise, think on these things. And then the action, what have you seen in me and heard and saw in me? These things do, and the God of peace will be with you. So we have the peace of God and the God of peace in um, Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> And in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. If you do not feel the peace of Christ when you think about a particular brother, all you think of is, oh, I don't want to be around him or something. The peace of Christ is ruling your heart. It's umpiring that you're out of the strike zone. You're, you are, you're missing the mark. And you need to work things out so that you will have that peace with him. But the most important thing, to renew the conscience daily, it's not just peace, but to make sure that we have peace with God, to have a, a clear conscience, and we need to let God do that. In Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about the power of the blood of Christ to truly take away sin so that we no longer have an unclean conscience. It's a, a spiritual blessing that the old law and the sacrifices of the old law could not give. So, um, beginning with verse 9, it says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Only foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a contrast here between flesh and spirit. There was a purifying of the flesh that could happen through the law of Moses. Now, it's not just talking about taking a bath. It's talking about the ashes of a heifer being used and everything else. So that a person is ceremonial unclean. There was a ceremonial washing that took place that could purify the flesh. Under the old law, that was the nature of, of the law as a whole. It was a copy and shadow of the things that would find their spiritual reality in the blood of Christ, in the spiritual tabernacle in heaven for... He is high priest even today. Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, it appeals to us to stay draw near to God and, and remain near to Him. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's what the blood of Christ can do for us. And our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then when you go to 1 Peter 3.21, it says, Now baptism does also now save us. The religious world says baptism does also not save us. And Peter went on to say, is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. That's what Hebrews 9 was talking about. The animal sacrifices, the rituals. It was a ceremonial ritual. It was not the real deal. Baptism is asking God for a good conscience. And that's what we're asking based upon our faith in the resurrection of Jesus, based upon his, the fact that he died for our sins. And so Peter's saying it's not a mere outward ritual that would purify the flesh like the laws that they were keeping under the old law. Baptism is where you find this spiritual reality of contacting the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is sprinkled on your conscience the moment when you are, your body is washed in that water, like Hebrews 10, 22 uh, tells us. So if you're one who needs to obey the gospel, your conscience can be clean. And just like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, he went on his way rejoicing. Not after he had a great worship time in, in, in Jerusalem, not because he was reading Isaiah. Now he understood it because Philip explained it to him, but because he knew his sins were washed away. When he found the water, he says, here's water. What would keep me from being baptized? He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And of course, he confessed, which is a practical purpose of showing that, yeah, you may be baptized because you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And on the basis of that faith, he was buried in water, in the death of Christ for an remission of sins and then was raised up to walk in newness of life. And that's why the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. It was his faith that raised him, according to Colossians 2. Now, if you've already done that, if you believe you've been baptized, just like Simon in um, chap chapter 8, then uh, at that point, when you commit sin, you still need forgiveness, but it's going to be uh, through what Peter said to him, being in the gall of bitterness and bound by iniquity, you, you have to be, you have to repent and pray to God for that forgiveness. And then Simon says, you pray to the Lord with me, for me, so that these things that you spoke of may not come upon me. So if you're one here who needs to respond to the, to the gospel, we would encourage you to let that be made known by coming forward while we stand and sing this song to invite you.